Buenos días, mi nombre es Merlin Gallegos. Hi, my name is Merlin Gallegos. I am an early educator. I am a director at uh, Home Care. I set up my, my home center for early education because I thought that this was going to be something that was really going to be better. I wanted to help my family, but the pandemic affected us and there are no funds. We're in total crisis. Welcome to Where's My Village, Fortune's podcast about the childcare crisis in America and the stories of the people who are trying to fix it. My name is Megan Lenhart, a senior reporter here at Fortune. You just heard from Marlene Gallegos, a childcare provider who owns and operates a childcare center out of her home in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Many of the children Gallegos works with come from immigrant and migrant families whose parents work long hours. She opens the door to her home at 6 a.m. every morning for about a half dozen children ranging in age from infants to four-year-olds, some of whom stay in her care until late in the evening. Gallegos is a native Spanish speaker, so the English translation has been provided by Ana Nunez. No, no tenemos los suficientes fondos para poder pagar un empleado. Uh, usually, I, I do everything. I am a cook, I am a teacher, I am a director. I am the cleaning lady. Um, I wish I could have someone that would help me, uh, at least one teacher, so I could be able to do better, to do more. But I am doing the work of uh, five people. I'm not able to hire anyone because we were not having any profits. Gallegos is one of thousands of childcare providers who operate out of their homes. These types of settings are typically referred to as both home-based care and family care. About one-third of American children ages infant to five years are in home-based care. Some providers, like Gallegos, are licensed and operate as a business. Others are non-licensed caretakers who look after the children of family members and neighbors. Licensing requirements do vary by state and often hinge on how many kids the providers have in their care. These types of providers have been a trusted form of care for many American families for a long time, and they've proven to be quite durable over the past three years of the pandemic. 28% of home-based providers stayed open throughout the pandemic, compared to only 10% of childcare centers. This is likely because these providers were smaller and did not face the same class size ratio restrictions that many larger centers had to contend with. And some families actually preferred having their kids in these smaller settings during the pandemic. Although Gallegos kept her center's doors open throughout the pandemic, it was incredibly difficult. Four families, or 75% of her average enrollment, withdrew from her center in 2020 because they could no longer afford it. She also cared for a few children for free over the past two years. She said she did this because she felt a responsibility to help her fellow immigrants who were struggling to make ends meet, just like her. Because of the hit to the center's finances, Gallegos' husband and daughter, who previously worked as her assistant teachers for years, had to both take second jobs, leaving her without help. Gallegos continues to endure these challenges not only because she loves her job, but because she also understands that she provides a critical service to her community. Disfruto cada, pues cada cosa que yo hago con los niños. 
it's everything about children. I love working with children. I like to stimulate their education, their learning. I even have children with disabilities. And uh, I like to have that connection with the parents. There is no certificate that would really tell me uh, what I have to do. This is something that comes from within. The last two years have done a number on Gallegos, but she's keeping the faith and moving forward. I'm actually really sad because I cannot just make money up here on its own, but I don't lose hope. I believe that there's a real purpose for this. And I think that with time, uh, we there's going to be like a reimbursement. We, we're going to get back on track. Specifically, Gallegos is talking here about her hopes for some sort of financial support from the government. But neither the state nor the federal government has been consistently providing stable support for any childcare providers, and especially not for home-based providers like Gallegos. Historically, the little support that has been available to home-based providers has usually come in the form of government grants that are administered by universities and state and local partners. These grants are temporary and typically come with a whole host of stringent requirements. Also, grants often run out of money before their term is actually finished. And childcare providers were technically eligible for the Paycheck Protection Program created under the 2020 CARES Act, but these loans were difficult to secure. Only 25% of in-home providers even applied for PPP loans, as they were called. Of the 25% who applied, less than half were approved for the loan. Many in-home providers didn't qualify for PPP loans because many are self-employed or don't have business bank accounts. All of these flash-in-the-pan grants and unattainable loans left us wondering, What other forms of support are out there for home-based providers? How are these folks surviving? For all of the hardships that the pandemic brought to the childcare space, it really crystallized the point that childcare is an economic issue. In my discussions over the last two and a half years with parents, childcare providers, business leaders, academics, and experts, almost all uniformly pointed out that this silver lining forced many organizations to consider bigger investments in innovation in this space. The lesson is also echoing in the startup space as funding for childcare and pediatric startups jumped from about $670 million in 2020 to $1.4 billion in 2021, according to PitchBook data. Chris Bennett is one person who is using private investment to support providers. My name's Chris Bennett. I'm the CEO of Wonder School. I started looking into my own childhood and I learned that I went to really good childcare programs and I went to an in-home program started by a woman who ended up going from like serving 10 families to now she serves hundreds of families in the community where I grew up. And she's doing really well financially. In the Bay Area, I kept hearing about there being a shortage of childcare. And I didn't understand why there weren't more people who were like Yoli, why there weren't more people like her going on that journey. Bennett's personal experience with Yoli sparked his interest in helping home-based providers specifically, an interest that led him to co-found WonderSchool. WonderSchool is a child care management platform that mainly supports both providers who are already caring for children in their homes and want to become licensed, and already licensed providers who want to grow their business. 
But beyond Bennett's personal connection, he also noticed that home-based providers were often overlooked in both childcare policy and business conversations. This is a controversial statement, but I think it's a little bit racist. Like a lot of the folks who are running home-based childcare programs tend to be women of color. And there's sort of like a dismissal of them. I don't think people even know about home-based childcare. They haven't visited a home-based childcare. They didn't go to a home-based childcare program. But I think that's what's really interesting about me being a black man starting a technology company around childcare is uh, where I grew up, home-based childcare was ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's super normal. Home-based childcare is more likely to be used in low-income, non-white, and immigrant neighborhoods. This form of care is also crucial to rural areas, which often have very few childcare options. And home-based operators are twice as likely to be immigrants than providers who work in centers and are more likely to speak languages other than English. 95% of the 45,000 providers listed on Wonder School's platform are women, and 50% are Black women. Bennett believes that the prejudices these demographics face also leads to a belief that child care providers cannot be or don't deserve to be financially successful. It's clouding our ability to help solve the child care crisis in America today. It's really hard for folks to really believe how successful a child care provider can be. I've seen it with my own eyes. There's multiple providers on our platform who are making $200,000 a year running child care programs. And when I tell folks that, they just cannot believe it. According to the Wonder School data, 5% of the programs listed on the platform make $200,000 a year in revenues, and about 20% make over $100,000 a year. These are small percentages to be sure, but they do indicate the possibility that a childcare center can earn significant amounts of money. And Bennett believes that investment from the private sector can help even more providers earn even more money. In fact, he sees private money as a necessary element of today's childcare economy. Today, childcare is for profit. It is thought of and regulated as a business. And business works best when it's exposed to the free market and exposed to market dynamics. And so I think that unless we're going to make childcare free for everyone and completely uh, privatize it, for it to work, we really need to have those types of partnerships. Bennett makes a good point. Childcare is a business, but he is focusing here on two extremes, make childcare completely free or completely privatize it. Is there a realistic middle ground perhaps? In this episode of Where's My Village, we'll learn more about Wonder School and dig deeper into the opportunity for and the pros and cons of private investment in childcare. I think overall, private investment in care right now is, is very low, but it's growing very quickly. Shruti Jayaram is an associate partner at Dahlberg Advisors, a global strategy and policy advisory firm. Jairam co-led a 2021 study on the growing opportunity for private investment in America's care infrastructure. The investors she's referring to include venture capitalists, 
impact investors and other private investment firms. Our team created a sample recently of 500 investors that had made at least one care-related investment. It's not, again, a perfect or representative sample, but I personally was surprised we found 500. I think around half were to businesses and services that improve the consumer experience, so like an app or another product to help a working parent manage care. Around 40% were to kind of aggregating workers to provide care or matching platforms. And then a small share, I think it was like 5 to 7% were focused on providers of care and improving their experience. So like, you know, even in the macro picture, a lot more seems to be happening on the consumer side than the provider side um, of care. Less than 10% of private investments in the childcare space have gone directly to providers, which Jayaram also refers to as the supply side. It feels important and maybe obvious to point out that the supply side is struggling. We heard from Merlene Gallegos earlier about her specific struggles, but Gallegos isn't alone. A 2021 U.S. Treasury study found that most childcare providers have a profit margin of less than 1% and earn an average of $25,000 a year. And I'll remind you that since the start of the pandemic, 16,000 childcare centers have closed and 126,000 childcare workers have left the industry, many to work at higher paying retail jobs. And here's another obvious point. Demand for childcare is high. I'm talking sky high. According to 2020 census data, there are about 23 million children under the age of five in the US. So if we are considering the basic rules of supply and demand, this is not good. If providers are fleeing the profession because they can make more money working at Target, there is literally not enough supply of care to meet the demand of families. There is an opportunity for private investors to do more in care. And I think there's particularly an opportunity around how care is provided. Investors, I think it's fair to say, tend to be the more privileged of society and thus perhaps have more of a tendency to think about those who receive care because they often receive care themselves, right, than those who provide care. And I believe that opportunity is for a number of reasons. One is that they have two key assets that most other actors in the infrastructure don't, which is capital and the ability and willingness to take risks. The supply side of it, it, it just really doesn't quite work today. And so we need to fundamentally change how we think about that. Between the years of 2017 and 2021, about 6% of all VC money went to childcare startups. So if a childcare startup market is prime for investment, why have investors invested so little in the past in both the providers and the sector as a whole? Jayaram believes that there is a misunderstanding amongst investors that investing in childcare automatically means investing in a brick and mortar childcare center an unappealing endeavor in the age of the internet. But the opportunities for investment in the childcare space are diverse as the needs of the families and the providers. There's software like the one made by nonprofit startup Pi for Providers, which helps childcare providers prepare and track their paperwork. There are apps too, like Kinside, which partners with companies to help match their employees with care providers. And then there are unique platforms like Otter, 
Started by Helen Meyer in May 2020, Otter connects parents who need care with stay-at-home parents who are willing to provide that care for a fee. In its first year of business, Otter coordinated care for more than 7,000 families and helped 3,500 stay-at-home parents make a collective $20 million. Otter also raised $23 million in a Series A capital in 2021. Jess Lee is a partner at Sequoia Capital, an early investor in Otter. I know from my own experience as a founder that the female customer is often not thought of. And so I came into venture with this hypothesis that women are an underserved customer. And one of the most important underserved customers is the mom, uh, the mom of the family, the primary caregiver often. I mean, there's risk in all businesses, right? I mean, there's any service that touches the real world, like putting people in cars, sending people to your front door. I don't think that's what's holding back investment. I don't think it's the risk factor. I suspect it's more not even understanding this is a problem in the first place. And so you don't realize the burden uh, and the opportunity. But something has changed recently. Venture-backed childcare and parent tech companies raised $1.4 billion in 2021. That's more than the total of the previous four years combined. The spotlight the pandemic shone on the care industry probably had a lot to do with this. But Jayaram at Dahlberg actually saw an acceleration in funding start around 2018. Investment in the space jumped from $187 million in 2018 to $347 million in 2019. There's no means-tested explanation to prove why this happened, but there are some hypotheses. Here's Jess Lee. When I started, women were 9% of check writers in venture, and I believe that number is now 14%. I'm definitely seeing more and more investments in spaces where women are the primary customer. I think that those two will flow naturally, the dollars to female founders and the number of check writers who are women. Lee also thinks that increasing investments can be explained by larger cultural and lifestyle trends. As a consumer investor, you look for what are the the demographic shifts? What are the trends? What's next that's going to reshape how people work and live and enjoy themselves. It's been pretty clear to me that the way we parent has shifted a lot over the years. And so it's just clear to me that when you see those kinds of shifts, there's often an investment opportunity and a product that could really radically improve people's lives. And so I think there are big businesses to be built (laughs) in caregiving. And I think the potential to have a really big societal impact. And what is this big business to be built? There is very little information around the overall returns for investors in the childcare tech sector. This is likely because most childcare companies are still private, making returns difficult to track. But what we do know is that there is a high demand for millions of parents who need to spend money on a limited supply of childcare. According to a 2021 study by the holding company and Pivotal Ventures, U.S. parents spend $136 billion a year on infant and child care. So there's a lot of money to be spent, a lot of money to be made as well. We asked Shruti Jairam what she would say to an investor who might be skeptical of investing in childcare. People will always have kids, right? Parents will always need childcare. This is 
I think what's called evergreen market fundamentals, right? On the demand side, on the supply side, I think there's space for folks with different levels of risk return appetite. There's an indescribable social return for providers, for caregivers, for gender equity, for racial equity from some of these investments. We also asked Jess Lee for the pitch that she would give a skeptical investor. I think I would say, imagine a customer who controls 80% of household purchasing power, whose number two expense is this issue, who is deeply unhappy with the state of things, and 50% of these customers don't have access to the thing that they want. Does that seem like a pretty big problem? I think the answer would be yes. You know, there are not a lot of companies that are public that are in the childcare market. The two are Care.com and uh, Bright Horizons. And so there's just not, not a lot of precedent to hang your hat on. Bennett said when he first began raising money for Wonder School back in 2012, investors were skeptical. It's, it's tough because when you're fundraising, it's not like people tell you why they're not investing. And so it's hard to sort of read between the lines. But I know that the folks who have invested are really happy that they did because things are going so well. And just how well is Wonder School really doing? The company has raised a total of $49 million since its inception, with almost half of that coming in a Series B round of $25 million in January of this year. That was led by Goldman Sachs as part of its $1 million Black Women initiative. And Bennett told us Wonder School's revenue increased seven times over between June 2020 and January 2021. Bennett pitches his company with the vision that is similar to Shruti Jayaram's idea that providers are a prime place for investment. We find that the childcare provider is the linchpin for success for childcare. We, we are obsessed with making providers successful because if providers are successful, children are successful. So how does Wonder School help providers succeed? Well, for one, the company focuses on helping prospective providers understand the licensing requirements to start a home-based program. Then it helps them meet those requirements. So you can start an in-home childcare program in most states without even getting licensed. Um, you can serve two children. After two children, you have to be licensed in most states. And to get licensed, you have to do um, a background check with the state. You have to do a home inspection. It costs about $5,000 on the high end to set up your home. You need insurance, but we, if you join Wonder School under our partnership model, we pay for your insurance. And then you need to fill your program. This is sort of like a crude way to say it, but it's like selling a house. So, you know, if you were selling your house, you would do an open house every week so that people can come and see your house. Same thing with childcare program. Until you're full, you want to run an open house every week so parents can come and see your program, meet other parents that are enrolled in the program, and then you can enroll all of the families through the Wonder School platform. You can manage your payments through the Wonder School platform. Wonder School helps both new and existing providers with business operations, accounting, marketing, and curriculum development. Once on the platform, programs are called Wonder Schools, and the people who lead them are referred to as Wonder School Directors. The Wonder Schools are categorized in the company's online directory, which often is the first hit on Google when parents search for childcare centers in their area. Bennett says most of the current Wonder School directors found his company through word of mouth. 
Shante Taylor started a childcare program out of her home in South LA 25 years ago after burning out in her dozen-year career as a flight attendant. About seven years ago, an LA County grant program she relied on to support her business ran out of funding. At the time, Taylor was unsure if she could continue to operate her center without this necessary funding, until she got a call from her sister. My sister had a flyer and she said, I'm gonna send you this flyer. There's some information about this program. I don't know if you wanna look into it or not. So I did reach out to Wonder School and at the time, the person that I did speak with, she said, do you mind showing me, you know, your camera? the time FaceTime and I said uh not really I said because I'm closed and I'm cleaning I have clothes everywhere she said no don't worry I just want to see your space so I said okay so I showed her upstairs and then I came downstairs and I showed her my outside she said you have a beautiful space we would like to partner with you they did the marketing pamphlets for me and I said we did get a few families from that and I said this may work you know and proceeded on, you know, continued to do tours and tours and business just picked back up and thrived from there. And what I will attribute this to Wonder School because prior to signing on with Wonder School, I was pretty much a one woman show. And what I mean by that is just the admin, payroll, uh, deposits, collecting money from parents, touring. And well, it, it was, every, I didn't have anyone to turn to. So with signing on with Wonder School, it allowed more space and freedom for me to focus on the business changes and everything with them partnering with me to take care of those important things. Taylor has been a Wonder School director now for seven years, and she says her partnership with the company has helped her program grow extensively. She wasn't comfortable providing exact financials, but she did share this with our producer Alexis when asked if her business has grown. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt. And does that growth come in terms of just making more money or does it come in terms of like you're recruiting more students? Is it a bit of both? I would say both. I definitely would say both. I would say uh, the financial side of it. I would say just the flow, the, the, the access that families have to find me, the accessibility, you know, via the internet, be able to see what information we have available. Oh, also my Yelp account was, just, you know, just more advertising and putting me out there getting feedback, you know, with the families responding, whether they sign up or not, you know, but it's a, it's an overall great, it's been great. So I do contribute that to Wonder School by 1000%. And beyond money, Wonder School has given Taylor her time back. There's some parents that wanted to breach contract, you know, whether it's not adhered to the 60-day notice upon giving termination. It allowed me to share that with Wonder School, focus on the business, and Wonder School intervene, you know, and navigate and get it resolved. Wonder School's goal for the providers on its platform is pretty simple, for them to make money while providing kids with an excellent education. And if you remember from the beginning of the episode, there are Wonder School providers who are making six figures a year. So we really are focused on helping childcare providers earn either the median income or more than the median income of their area. And so the folks that are earning, you know, $200,000 a year are in the highest median income neighborhoods in America. $200,000 still seems a bit high to me, and I'm a little skeptical, mostly because it is so far from the reality that the average provider in the U.S. is making today, which is about $25,000 a year. 
It's important to note that this $200,000 refers to the provider's revenue, not necessarily their take-home pay, which of course is a little bit of a question mark still. And if we return to the Wonder School data that 5% of their 45,000 providers make over 200 grand, that's a little over 2,000 providers when all is said and done. We asked Bennett how $200,000 a year in revenue was really possible for that 5%. In, in the Bay Area, childcare costs about $3,000 a month. 3,000 times 12 is $36,000 a month times 12, you know, is close to $400,000 a year. And you start to subtract the cost of an assistant teacher. So assistants in the Bay Area typically make about forty to $50,000 a year. Um, so if you have two assistants and you're paying them $100,000, you're left over with about $300,000 for the provider. And then there's additional costs. You have to, you know, provide food to the children. But you can often pass that off to the parents to pay for it. You know, there's maintenance costs. You might have an increase in utilities to be able to fund that. But the majority of your costs are assistance. Now, you might think, oh, well, what do we do about, how about rent? Um, after paying for their major expenses, the rent is normally the same if they're doing it out of the home where they're planning to live anyway. It's inspiring that folks like Bennett want to boost the historically slim operating margins for childcare providers, but $200,000 in revenue for home-based providers seems like it might need to come with one of those old Weight Watchers warnings about the results not being the norm. For one, having 12 kids in one home-based center at a time is a bit high. Most of the providers I've spoken with over the years have about a half dozen kids in their care, but that does tend to vary. Most Wonder School directors do make more money on the platform than they would without it. In terms of salary, not revenue, Wonder School directors earn an average of $78,000 or more than twice the median salary of a preschool teacher in the U.S. And let's not forget, Wonder School is a for-profit company, so it's also trying to make a buck. It has two traditional sources of revenue. The first is the providers themselves, who can opt into different tiers of service, each one requiring providers to share increasing portions of their revenue. And the second source of revenue is partnerships Wonder School has with a number of states. These states actually pay Wonder School to gather and analyze data on their childcare infrastructure. In these states, childcare providers can access Wonder School's platform for free. Government partnerships are really exciting because we want it to be free for a childcare provider. That's the ideal state. When we don't work with a government, we have different pricing models. And so we have a, a tier called our partnership tier where um, all of the enrollments that a provider gets, they pay us a portion of their revenue. Um, it starts off at 10%. And then as the program gets bigger, it goes down and we cover insurance. We, get, we keep their program full. We have the account managers for the programs. We create their website for them. We manage everything for them. But then we have a, a tier called our premium tier where we only charge you 10% for the enrollments we bring you. If you get the enrollment yourself, it's only $2 per month per kid. And uh, you get access to our billing tools and you get access to um, a portion of the things that we provide in partnership. And then we have a free tier, which is essentially you can just list your program on the Wonder School platform. And uh, we don't charge you anything for that. 
And Bennett says Wonder School's long-term vision is to have childcare be as ubiquitous as many of the other on-demand services consumers have become accustomed to. Today, if you want a taxi, you can press a button anywhere in America and get one. And if we'll, you'll know we, have, we are on our way when you go to wonderschool.com, you type in your zip code, and you, you see a childcare option you like anywhere in the country. This Uber-adjacent future is easier said than done. There are a lot of roadblocks towards putting together a national childcare company. Similar to the obstacles Uber faced, each city, town, and state have different requirements and standards for childcare providers. And this vision Bennett just mentioned is dependent on providers trusting the platform enough to pay Wonderschool their hard-earned and much-needed money. We asked Shante Taylor if she was on board with Wonderschool when her sister first slipped her the flyer seven years ago. Not at all. I said, this is some BS. And you <laughs> because there's so many, you know, you have so many people that are out. You know, even I get calls now. I get emails, marketing. We see that you can get more traction on your website. You know, so you used to seeing that type of stuff. And I just said, what is this? You know, this is some, some gimmick whatever. I'm not going to tell you what I said, but, <laughs> but um, yes, I did not believe it, to be honest with you. And Bennett says Taylor wasn't the only one who was skeptical. There used to be a lot of issues around trust, but that's changed a lot at Wonder School. I think when we started off, it was just like, oh, who's this tech bro starting a tech company to fix childcare? Ha ha ha. Right. Bennett highlights something interesting here when calling himself a tech bro. He is a male founder whose company is targeting an almost entirely female workforce working in childcare, a responsibility historically associated with women. He admitted his gender affects how potential customers see him and his intentions. Here he is speaking with our producer, Alexis. Yeah, I feel insecure about it too. I don't even have children, Alexis. I'm not, I'm not even married, but I'm a pretty well-educated person and I do a lot of deep research. And I, I really believe that childcare is the biggest, you know, social challenge we have in the world right now. I don't know if I can prove that a lot more home-based providers trust Bennett and Wonderschool now than they did at the company's founding in 2016. But I do think convincing 45,000 providers who have probably been burned before to join your platform is a pretty good testament. Bennett's passion for fixing childcare in America is incredibly palpable during his interview, and that passion does count for something. From a social standpoint, childcare is so important because if you're a kid and you, if you don't get access to love, if you don't get access to social emotional learning, if you don't get access to, you know, an environment that's safe for your brain to develop before the ages of zero and five, you will fall so far behind. You won't be able to keep up in the K-12 system. And there are a lot of black men who suffer that fate. And I know it because I grew up in that environment. And so I just can't think of anything more important than making sure that you know, my friends, the people I grew up with, and just people in America, everyone's kids get access to high quality early childhood education. So by the time their kids are five or six, they at least, you know, can excel in the elementary school system. 
and have choices later on in life. There was something nagging us while we were reporting this episode, something that we wanted to make sure we explored. Most parents are willing to sacrifice to ensure their kids get the best possible start, and that includes paying high costs for childcare. But when venture capitalists, who are not exactly known for their philanthropic bent, enter the scene, how does that change the dynamic? More supply is needed, but at what potential cost? So here's the big question. What are the implications of tying private investment to businesses that are intrinsically linked to the needs of parents and children? I'm thinking about Chris Bennett's long-term vision for Wonder School to be the Uber of childcare, and how that vision squares with the reality that Uber is a behemoth app that monopolizes the taxi cab market and is also regularly accused of mistreating its workforce. In Bennett's vision, would providers be put in that same position? Leah Austin is the executive director of the Center for Study of Childcare Employment at Berkeley. I think that when we think about kind of big childcare, corporate childcare, I think there are some important questions we have to ask about what does it mean to be making a profit when workers are earning poverty level wages, earning low wages, having high levels of food insecurity. And how do we reconcile these two things? Over the years, I've seen so many variations of like a silver bullet, right? We're going to come in with this fix or we're going to come in with this new program or this new initiative or this new resource. You know, there's pages of these you could go through. We brought up Austin's concerns with Shruti Jayaram of Dahlberg Advisors. I shared that concern. I think that's a very valid concern. It is kind of my belief, and I do think investors have a role to play here. I don't think they have a primary role. I don't think they are a silver bullet. (laughs) And I think we should be really clear-eyed about what it means to have private investors involved and their interests involved. I do see risks of, for example, losing sight uh, of the care providers, which is something that's historically been a, a, a risk in many areas. To help mitigate this risk, Jairam thinks the private sector can serve as just one of the different actors needed to stabilize and improve the country's crumbling care infrastructure. There is a concept called the care diamond in the global women's rights literature. It's, um, it basically says that care is fundamentally a social responsibility. It's not a private one. The market, the state, the family, and the community all need to be involved in care because Not only do all of these actors have kind of a responsibility towards those that need care, but also that effective care benefits the interests of all of these actors. I believe this is really true in the U.S. I think care, the role of the government cannot be understated. It's very important. I, I wouldn't want to say that any solutions should exclude the government. I totally don't believe that. This brings us back to a point that Beth Coet made in the government episode of the series. And it's the same point that Maria Aspen made in the episode about employer-based care. To really fix childcare in the U.S., we need more support from our federal government. Private investment, as we've seen here, can play a role in improving America's childcare infrastructure, but it is not a silver bullet unto itself. And Chris Bennett does not see Wonder School as the silver bullet either. 
He sees his company as one part of a necessary partnership that requires both members to work together and stick to what they're good at. I don't believe Wonder School can exist or work without the support of the government. We have to work with the government. All the childcare programs have to get licensed. Governments have so much funding to ensure quality and to make sure that low-income individuals are able to go to childcare programs. But building, you know, software that works across the entire United States that allows for a childcare program to manage its business, that's not something that government has shown any sort of precedent, at least, in being able to execute on. That's all come from technology companies from all over the world. So why not partner? Why not work together to make sure every child gets access to high quality early childhood education? Where is My Village is produced, written, and reported by Alexis Hott. Nicole Vergala is our editor. Our fact checker is Lucy Lotus Lee. Original music is by Bennett Pastor. Special thanks to everyone we interviewed for this podcast and to the Community Change Action who connected us with Merlene Gallegos. Megan Arnold is our executive producer. Where is My Village is a production of Fortune Media. 